I think what they've done actually really well is the government has stepped in very quickly and stepped in big. And how they've done that, and I do think it's very smart, they started creating a venture capital industry locally. So they, they are backing managers. They are creating a venture industry because I think from their perspective, they're saying, well, what's the best way to fund these startups? I don't want to do it as a government. I'm not, I don't have experts. I don't want to do that. So why don't we fund or anchor new managers to emerge that are willing to invest in the kingdom? And that's what they're doing. Uh, whether you talk about Jeddah, whether you talk about SVC, I mean, they, they are backing new managers to launch funds for Saudi, but also for the region. I mean, to give them credit, they're, they're not saying you have to invest all your money in Saudi, but they're saying we'd like you to invest some of it here in Saudi. The entrepreneurial ecosystem in Saudi Arabia is thriving. Evidence of this can be found in the sharp increase of new startups founded in the kingdom, in new investments, both in early and later stage rounds, in a growing number of acquisitions and exits, new IPOs on the kingdom's stock market, and in new VC funds setting up locally in the kingdom to get in on a Saudi economy opening up. Evidence can also be found, importantly, in surveys of attitudes in Saudi Arabia. In 2021, over 80% of people in the kingdom perceived good opportunities to start a new business. Joining us today on the 966 to talk about this and more is venture capitalist Amjad Ahmed, managing partner of the VC firm Precinct Partners and also director and resident senior fellow of Empower Me at the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East. Amjad, thank you so much for joining us on the 966. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Hamjad, I think a great place to start uh, is telling our listeners and viewers a little bit about your VC journey and the work you're doing with the Atlantic Council. Sure. So um, I've been investing in private equity and venture capital in the region for over two decades. Um, I actually lived out in the Gulf for 16 years uh, before coming back to the U.S. Uh, in 2019. Um, so really saw a, a tremendous journey of growth in terms of private uh, market investing, um, mature companies, and, and now it's nice to see the startups. Um, and Empower Middle East really continued that journey. Um, what's great about Empower Middle East is the Atlantic Council was um, thinking about how to launch a economically focused um, initiative and um, just happened to get in touch with them very early, helped set up the strategy, um, talk about the initiatives, how will we structure it? What will we work on? And really our goal was how do we uh, increase the, or, or add to the narrative of the region, right? I think you hear enough about energy, you hear enough about security and politics, but we don't hear much about the economy. And when we do, it's really macroeconomic rather than sort of these things that are happening peer to peer, human development, what are people doing on the ground? And we wanted to bring that. We wanted to bring that to the discussion. We thought it was important. Um, and, and for me personally, having invested for so long, just seeing the impact of what these investments can do, right? I think we underestimate sometimes what entrepreneurship can, can do and the impact that it has. Um, and, and I saw a tremendous impact and I want to continue that. So the Atlantic Council and, and the Empower Me Initiative is just a continuation of, of that impact. You know, it's interesting, and maybe this is what attracted me to your work. This is uh, a recurring theme on the 966 and uh, it's sort of uh, something I expressed. My frustration with the U.S. in particular's inability to get beyond the, the standard paradigm, you know, the, the energy, the security, the politics, uh, and not get down to where you're talking about, the economy and, and the investment opportunities and the things required to make, a, make these economies succeed in the long term. Um, but let me, so you, your, your venture capital journey is fascinating. And with regard to MENA, uh, it's got to be particularly interesting these last few years. I mean, what have you seen change with regard to Middle East, North Africa, and the Gulf in particular? Yes, I've, I've often, often wondered that myself. And so my journey started in traditional sort of private equity, which is, you know, typical investing in traditional sectors, very large companies, companies already established. You, you just didn't see entrepreneurship before sort of 2013, 
2012. Uh, there wasn't much activity in terms of the traditional, you know, founders starting a company, scaling it, and so on and so forth. So the question is, well, what happened? So Amjad, let me interrupt there. So what were you investing in? So we were investing in family businesses, traditional family businesses, um, people that were already liquid and, and, and had multiple businesses. They were already scaled up. Um, so, so these were much more mature investments and traditional sectors, right? Like what we call the, 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 the old economy sectors, not, not technology. Um, so, so the question, well, what happened at that stage? I, I think you had a, a confluence of things. One is becoming an entrepreneur became much cheaper, right? You had AWS, so you can buy storage, you can buy processing power. Um, Dubai in particular brought down the cost of starting a business in terms of starting a company, getting the licensing and so on and so forth. That started to come down. And, and that was particular at the time to the UAE. It hadn't gotten to Saudi and, and other markets yet. Um, so the UAE was sort of very progressive in its thinking about entrepreneurship, lowering those barriers. You had funders start coming in. Um, so people who got excited about this space. And frankly, technology globally was taking off um, and people were looking at different things to start investing. Um, entrepreneurs started pushing the envelope on regulations. Um, you know, I think you've heard of, of Kareem, of course, which is the Uber of the Middle East. I mean, talk about, you know, uh, uh, breaking things. The first few years, they were operating without regs, without anything. I mean, they were just, hey, we're going to get this started, right? Um, which is unusual for the region, right? I mean, that's not, that's pretty usual for the United States, but in the region for someone to start a company and say, ah, we'll worry about the regulations later. Exactly. We'll, see, we'll go, we'll go rogue. Right. That doesn't happen often. So, so you had a lot of interesting stories start coming out and Kareem wasn't the only one. I mean, you had stories that were smaller, but also very exciting. You had Souk, you had Maktoub out of Jordan and, and what happened is you start seeing this ripple effect of people saying, wow, you can actually invest in entrepreneurship and, and get it going. I think energy prices also played a factor because as the pressure started mounting on energy prices, I think a lot of governments were thinking, how do we diversify? And I think the traditional model of just backing large family groups and offices just never trickled down to the rest of the population. So they said, well, why don't we work on SMEs? Why don't we help entrepreneurs scale and create companies? So I think you had all these different pieces start coming together um, and successes don't hurt, uh, right? So uh, you had all these success stories, people making a lot of money, and then those entrepreneurs left and started creating new companies. So I think that's what you're seeing today, the snowball effect. I think Saudi in particular and Egypt and the rest already saw a workable model, which was the UAE, because they were a bit ahead in, in sort of taking on entrepreneurship. So I think now what you're seeing is an acceleration of this model across the different geographies, geographies of, the, of the region. And Saudi really only took off in the last couple of years in terms of entrepreneurship. Um, but of course, their, their, their growth has been a hockey stick, um, because again, they, there's a model already there. To, to look at and see. And I think they're just trying to surpass now um, the entire region. And given that the size of the economy is substantial, they're probably in well positioned to do that. You know, access to capital is always the, the first hurdle, it seems, if you've actually got something to sell. Uh, so are you saying, you know, in 2013, things started to evolve. Is that, was that spearheaded or catalyzed by a different government approach? I would say no. Initially, it was barrier to entry to start a company coming down, right? Computing costs, all of that. I mean, it became much cheaper. Right. And as it became cheaper, I think private capital was there to plug that hole, that initial hole, right? I think what you're alluding to is the scalability of the ecosystem. Right. There was no way that the ecosystem can scale without government support. Gotcha. So you had an initial sort of laying of the seeds by entrepreneurs and, you know, these, these private investors who were eager to invest in the space. They, they thought there was opportunity. But I don't think you would have seen the scale that you see today across the region, no matter what country, without the government being supported. Right? Well, 
let's look at that scale. So, so venture capital, let's talk about 2021. Venture capital funding to MENA startups <clears throat> rose to $2.6 billion in 2021, which was 138% higher compared to 2020. This is, this is Magnet who's reporting this. Yes. The kingdom, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Egypt being the most active. Overall, the MENA region welcomed record-making venture capital numbers, uh, registering transactions uh, of, of a high of 590 deals. This is interesting, and this is something I'd like to get you to get to. 35 exits were announced, and that's always a, it's always a challenge and something I think you have more options now in the region. But uh, the Magnet, Magnet also reports there are now... 1,349 startups in the kingdom. I'm guessing there's more since, since this, this, this data was put out. But yeah, just, just like you say, a hockey stick on steroids. Yes, and, and if, you, if you allude to Saudi Arabia specifically, I think what they've done actually really well is the government has stepped in very quickly and stepped in big. And how they've done that, and I do think it's very smart, they started creating a venture capital industry locally. So they, they are backing managers. They are creating a venture industry because I think from their perspective, they're saying, well, what's the best way to fund these startups? I don't want to do it as a government. I'm not, I don't have experts. I don't want to do that. So why don't we fund or anchor new managers to emerge that are willing to invest in the kingdom? And that's what they're doing. Uh, whether you talk about Jeddah, whether you talk about SVC, I mean, they they are backing new managers to launch funds for Saudi, but also for the region. I mean, to give them credit, they're they're not saying you have to invest all your money in Saudi, but they're saying we'd like you to invest some of it here in Saudi. So I think that was a very smart thing to do. And that's why you see the hockey stick, because they stepped in relatively quickly. The minute they saw that, wow, this is working, right? And, and when I mean working, why is it working? You know, we've always had an employment issue in the region, right? And governments have taken on that burden of employment. And the private sector was pretty sleepy. I mean, beyond some large conglomerates, you didn't have a thriving private sector. What they're realizing is backing entrepreneurship creates a thriving private sector <laughs> that can scale. So I think they recognize that very quickly, that this could be a way, an outlet for young people to you know, stop looking for employment and create their own employment in a way. So I think that's been very powerful. And so they've, they've backed that significantly. At the same time, and I don't know if you saw this in, in the report, when you look at the large checks, they're also participating in the large checks. So as these companies scale, government is also saying, well, okay, the VC funds can't handle writing a 50 million, 75, $100 million check. We'll add to that. And that, again, I think is key because what you don't have to talk now about the challenges of the region is you don't have a thriving international VC segment in the region. It's a lot of localized investment. So that's uh, be a big challenge. And I, I want to get to that. Uh, so you're talking about like this Jada fund of funds, right? Yes. Yes. Jada. Uh, where PIF is, is essentially took a billion dollars. It's got a billion dollars. They haven't distributed at all, but they're taking, like Mubadada did this too in 2019. Same thing, a little lower scale, I think 150 million, where, yes. where the sovereign wealth fund is, is putting money into the, into the hands of veteran seasoned VC venture capitalists who know what they're doing, know what they're looking at. Richard, I think if you look at it dollar for dollar, Saudi has been much more aggressive. Interesting. I think the UAE, in my opinion, did not feel, and, and this is strategic, right? This is their strategic thinking. They didn't feel that they needed to do that. They didn't feel like they needed to plug that hole. They figured, you know what? Let the private sector play out as it will. They did it, I think, to some degree. Dubai did it to some degree, but not to the numbers that you're seeing here with, with PIF. PIF and is really supporting the local industry. Let's talk about PIF because this PIF is is uh, an, a never-ending fascination to Lucian and me because its its mandate is so broad and so complex. I mean, it's external investment, internal investment, uh, how to uh, generate, and like you say, you know. So, so is has their investment 
very often from the private sector perspective, they're going, oh, PIF is, you know, I'm being pushed out of this sector, that sector, because PIF is taking it over. Right. In this venture capitalist area and these, these targeted investments that PIF are doing, are, you, are they finding the right measure, the right tone? That's a great question. So, so I think we need to take a step back first and talk about sovereigns in general, right? <laughs> I think people forget that the sovereign wealth funds in the region were originally created to get money out of the region. There, this phenomena of investing locally uh-huh. is very new. Well, because you couldn't make money in the region. Right, whether it's Mubadala, whether it's PIF, whether it's KIA, whether it's QIA, the strategy was take money generated by energy locally and send it abroad for future generations, right? Something shifted to say, well, wait a minute. You know, we have our own also internal diversification issues. The private sector is not doing it at the speed that we'd like. So we need to start investing locally as well. So there's been a shift, actually, and this is not an old shift. I think it's, it's fairly new to say, hey, let's start looking at our own economy, diversifying our own economy to create, frankly, more sustainability going forward, because energy is not going to last forever. So that's been a shift. Now, going back to your question, I think in the venture industry, PIF is striking a great tone again because they're backing managers. They're not crowding out managers by saying, you know, because realistically, can PIF go out and write $10 million checks at a time or $2 million? It's it's impossible, right? Mm -hmm. They need to focus on the big elephant deals. So I think what you're seeing in the market is they're going to let the managers focus on that Series A, Series B, seed. But if companies do get significant enough, I think you will see them participate. If they have to put in a 200, 300, 400, $500 million check, they will. And frankly, I would say that's great for the industry. It's not a negative because the venture industry is not that big to write a single check of hundreds of millions of dollars in the region. You know, the, the funds are fairly small, right? I mean, this is not the United States of America. This is, you know, the largest fund is, you know, I'm talking independent fund is maybe about 150 million. Maybe two hundred. So I, I have so many questions. This is every time I talk to you, I have always so many, so many questions. I want to sequence this properly. Sure. So while we're on the issue of uh, supporting uh, entrepreneurship and, and startups, uh, the uh, the issue of exits. Yep. And I think, am I wrong to say that I feel like Saudi has done a really good job in positioning the Tadawal to be a viable exit strategy? And, and you, have, you have the main bourse and you also have Nomu and you have, you know, you have a true unicorn like Jahez that just went valued for a billion dollars and listed on, on Nomu, I believe. Um, is, that, is that something that adds to the ecosystem? I think it's too early to tell whether it's a success. Um, uh, just to mention exits for a second. Exits have traditionally, and I, I'm talking my 20 years now plus, have always been challenging in the region. And I think the question is why. I think one is, you, which is what you're hitting on, capital markets are, are underdeveloped, mm-hmm. right? So it's very difficult for a company to go public if it's not profitable, for example. Right, we're in the U.S. You know, forty percent of our of our you know IPOs are unprofitable companies, right? Uh, technology companies that are burning cash. Right. Um, so, so I think there are a lot of laws and regulations that are hindering sort of the speed and of, of IPOs and the ability for companies to IPO. That's changing, and I think it's changing for the better. And I think you will definitely see in the next five years more companies go public, right? But I don't want to blame it totally on the capital markets. It's also because the industry is still fairly nascent. So we haven't scaled these companies to the degree like Jazz that can go public yet. Right. So I think you will see that coming. So I think the industry is improving in terms of more startups scaling to that level to be able to go public. And the capital markets are getting better. Right. Um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned that the, the in this, particularly in the Saudi uh, startup environment, uh, 
how active it's been over the last few years. It seems observing, you know, Saudi Arabia has these Vision 2030 uh, benchmarks. One of them is digital, digitization, e you know, e-commerce, all sorts of things. Especially those two, are just extraordinary. Basically, again, you re I used the term earlier, but put on steroids due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yep. And you see a lot of startups in Saudi Arabia in terms of capital, where it's going. And, and you know, it goes to early ones are going to food and beverage, uh, fintech, e-commerce, a lot of these things, finding their origins, inspirations out of that, that uh, pandemic environment. Is that accurate to say that it, it you know, that, that period uh, really moved the, the, the ecosystem along? I mean, look, we were already moving and this just basically accelerated everything. So before the pandemic, the region was you know, experiencing substantial growth across the digital spectrum, whether it was e-commerce. I would say that pandemic really just put poured gasoline on the fire. And it also, I think more important than this, is it broke down the barriers. You saw tremendous reforms during the pandemic that allowed for more companies to, to accelerate. Um, I'll give you a small example in e-commerce. You know, before the pandemic, <clears throat> only 20 to 30% of regional e-commerce customers paid by credit card. Can you imagine? Only 20 to 30%, which means the rest paid cash on delivery. And not to, to go down the rabbit hole of why that's terrible, but effectively, the sale is not done until you get that cash at the door. <laughs> but what it did is, is, is it really made e-commerce companies very challenged in terms of profitability, in terms of execution, in terms of so many things. Fast forward to today, you're seeing e-commerce rates in terms of credit cards now in the 70 80%. You know, so the equation just flipped, right? And now right. that's made e-commerce companies more viable, more profitable, more transactions are being executed. So that small difference just, just really changed the dynamic, which brought in more investors to e-commerce, right? Um, uh, to, to return to government actions, I believe in June 2020, Saudi Arabia outlawed cash at point of sales. A little teeny thing that went unremarked I don't think uh, very little news coverage of it, but uh, just, you know, like you say, forced, I mean, it, it was, you know, the, the transition you know, for health reasons, this was done, but again, it, it helped force this move to e-commerce and, 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 and credit. Uh, Absolutely. And, and it, it's playing now in the FinTech space, right? Now people are willing to have a bank account online and, willing to transact purely online. FinTech would not be developing today if it wasn't for that. People are getting lending loans online. Um, so everything really changed for the better. It would have happened eventually, right? But effectively what you did is you brought forward tremendous growth over the next 10 years. You brought it in two years, right? Okay. So that's really lit the fire and, and businesses now, by the way, you know, a lot of funding is now going into enterprise software because mm -hmm. all these small businesses are saying, oh, my God, I need to have a digital solution for my customers and for my suppliers and so on and so forth. So that's igniting a whole host of, of opportunities. But, you know, I, I still think, you know, going back to the exit question, we need more M&A. We need more capital markets for this to really succeed. and. The problem traditionally with M&A has been that we just don't have enough corporates out there seeking acquisitions locally, as well as unfortunately globally. <clears throat> and we're unable to attract the global players because the region is still challenged, right? It's challenged in terms of perception, which increases the risk premium. It's challenged in, because of complexity, which again, increases the risk premium. So I think while we're all focused on financing, I'm, I'm not so sure that's, that's really what's going to ignite the next stage. I think what's going to ignite it is opening up markets 
And so, what I mean by that is it is almost as difficult for a startup to go from Saudi to the UAE or Egypt to, the, to Saudi than it is for them to go to the U.S. I mean, that has to stop. You know, we need to open up the region. Companies need to be able to scale regionally. I think that's when you'll see significant FDI come into the region. Hmm. Is, that a, is that a psychological thing or administrative thing? I think it's historical, right? I mean, these were closed economies, right? I mean, it, it's very challenging and very costly for startups to go regional, right? It's, it's not like going from Riyadh to Cairo is like going New York to Houston. It, it's nothing like that. It's literally like starting a new business. So what that does is it, it impacts the scalability of these startups, which impacts their ability to attract massive investment, right? I right. Mean, you only have massive investment in the US and China because the markets are tremendously large. Mm-hmm. Right? So an investor says, well, would I rather play in a market that can only reach this much? Or I'd rather take a chance on a market that can reach right. this much, right? It's, it's, it's a much easier risk reward profile to invest in large markets. <clears throat> Let and me I think ask that's part of the region is challenged. But yes, you have you have integration issues, right? You have the problem with integration. Countries are not integrated. They don't allow sort of cross-border companies to work in their geography. It's very challenged, and especially by sector. And financial services is a perfect example. Very high barriers to entry in financial services. You cannot just go into another country in the region and do business. Very difficult. I mean, banks in the region have been unable to consolidate because of this, right? Let me ask a sort of related question that you may not be able to answer. So I'm, I'm here in New York at the Neom Roadshow. It's, it's fascinating. It's, it's been we pay attention to it. So we're not the exact audience. They're trying to introduce it and uh, drum up sport, but it was a very earnest, very, uh, I thought, well done presentation. Um, and I thought notable because this is the first foray back in the States in a PR nature, you know, a public PR nature since 2018. Um, when you look at a place like the Giga projects, Neon, Red Sea Development, Kadia, uh, Riyadh Gate, uh, just the, the, any number of uh, King of Bella Financial City, which is, which is you know about complete. Uh, uh, do, is, do you have any idea of startups or entrepreneurs are taking runs at that, or even have opportunities to do you know to get involved with those projects? I would say those things are on the periphery, right? Because these are mega infrastructure projects. They require tremendous capital. I think a lot of the action that we're seeing are on the soft infrastructure, um, technology. That's really where the action is. You know, not to say that locals are not participating in these investments, but I think what you see there is the more traditional conglomerates getting involved who have already built infrastructure for the government who are doing, doing those type of things. Now, you know, do you see small companies um, starting in tourism and, and things like that? Absolutely. But in terms of large infrastructure, I just don't think that capital is there. Um, it, it's going to require massive FDI. So, uh, so you you had that deep experience in Dubai in the region, but you but did you in terms of the Saudi startup community? Yes. Uh, did you see this sort of latent possibility? The I mean, have you been surprised? Or what's your assessment of it in terms of how? how quickly it's caught and how, how, how it's grown. And, and there just seems to be an influx of young Saudi entrepreneurs that, you know, hey, where'd they come from? Have they been there all along? That's a super question. They've always been there. The reality is that literacy rates are very high. Education rates are very high. Lots of Saudis, as you know, studied in the U.S. Uh, people have great degrees. It was all about opening up the opportunity set. Um, you know, I've been working in Saudi, for, again, for 20 years, and, and the talent was always there. It was a matter of giving them that opportunity to do so, right? Opening up that opportunity. So it wasn't surprising. Um, I think the pace has been surprising. Um, I knew it would come. 
Um, but I'm I'm really impressed with how much government support has been there to really light the fire. And I think without it, it probably wouldn't have happened. Um, because you know, you hit on funding, right? And right. without that funding, I mean a lot of people had great ideas, but where's the funding? Right. And I think you had a venture capital industry um, in the last you know decade that was more focused on the UAE, I would say. Yes, these funds called themselves regional, but they were really backing UAE companies to scale regional. Right. I think today you're seeing people on the ground in Saudi, investing in Saudi startups. And it was an interesting um, statistic that Saudi investors were the highest investors in their own local startups. Yeah. And that to me is such an amazing sign uh, of health of the ecosystem. And that you know, more investors locally are investing in startups. I think that's critical. That's, that's got to be very encouraging. It's interesting because in, in our discussions on the, the art and cultural side, you know, cinema and, and art and that sort of thing, very much the same thing. The sense that, okay, it's blooming right now, but wait a minute, they've been here all along. Exactly. I mean, artists don't just show up overnight. I mean, they've... <laughs> You know, they've been there, they've been doing the work, but they were doing it, you know, in other places, uh, taking a flight to Paris and Dubai and other places. But now they can do it locally. Um, and it's really refreshing. I mean, when you, when, you see, when you see the amount of artistic work that's happening in Saudi, whether it's fashion, whether it's um, art, whether it's uh, music, I mean, it's, it's tremendous. So we're, we're looking at, uh, you know, the, the attempts of, to diversify the economy and to really stimulate the non-oil economy. And we're talking about entrepreneurs and the small and small and medium-sized uh, enterprises. And obviously, those are, those are tremendous job creators. Uh, another goal for Saudi Arabia is FDI, foreign direct investment, which th they've lagged over the last years. They had a good 2021 in part because of the, the, the Ramco asset sale. Um, but they just finished the first of, of this Catalyze Saudi uh, events. They had, and, and just to give background, this is Catalyze Saudi is a, is a joint uh, initiative on the part of PIF and the Ministry of Investment, essentially to, to set up a, a sort of a networking platform for, for both Saudi entrepreneurs and international investments, investors. Yes. Uh, and they just completed their first one. I guess they brought in 30, uh, 30 investors, sort of, uh, and they, they went to Jeddah, and they went to the F1, and they were in Riyadh, and they, they, they did a lot of things. Is this something that sovereign wealth funds typically do? Not really. I mean, it's, it's definitely something governments do. Um, so if, if, if the question is whether governments do this, absolutely, all over the world. I mean... Right. Governments support their entrepreneurial sector. They try to highlight it. Um, as you know, we do as the U.S. We have we have agencies that sort of drive U.S. business outside and globally, and make sure that companies sort of have, a, have an easier path forward. So, so I think it's a great initiative. But um, again, the question is: Is exposure enough? I mean, is that really what is going to bring FDI? And, and I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that this is only a narrative issue. Um, I mean, huh. what you're doing, what I do with Empower Middle East is adding to changing that narrative, right? And saying, hey, there's some interesting things happening here, right? But real institutional investors who are thoughtful, who understand risk reward, are going to have a hard time investing consistently unless we prove to them that the region is investable on a wider scale. And I'm not talking about infrastructure. I'm talking about in the startup sphere, you know, every, every investor today asks themselves a question, whether they're sitting in London or they're sitting in New York or Singapore is, I have a dollar. What's the best place for me to invest? There you go. <laughs> there you go. And, yeah. And, and you know what, you know, what I would tell Saudi Arabia is you're competing against everybody else in the world. For that dollar. Right. You have to make yourself as attractive, if not more attractive. I would argue that the region has very attractive investments because we have underdeveloped sectors. What I think is unattractive is scaling companies is really challenging and it's costly. 
because of the lack of integration in the region. So we need to open up markets. That should be the number one policy. Saudi is 30 million people, 700, 800 billion dollar economy. For venture to really thrive, I would argue that's not enough long-term. You need a much larger playing field. And the more Saudi can open up markets for itself, whether it's Egypt, whether it's the UAE, whether it's India, Pakistan, whatever it is, for their startups and think more regionally, I think this, the, the, eventually the ecosystem is going to sputter. Right. Interesting. And 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 again, you you talk to you know I've I've pitched fund you know uh, institutional investors in the U.S. and in, in, in the U.K. in Asia. They struggle with the Middle East because they say, look, these are small markets. They're disconnected. Scaling is very challenged. So why would I invest there when I can invest in bigger markets, much easier to scale businesses? I'd rather do that. Right. Exits are difficult, exits are challenged. So there's no one thing here that's going to, to change this. I think there's a, there's a number of things that we need to do to, to spark this. It's heading in the right direction, but it's not going to happen overnight. Let, let's, be, let's be frank. I think Catalyze Saudi is fantastic because it's, it's adding to the dialogue and saying, hey, come see what we're doing and, and let's talk and help us. And I think that's fantastic. But... We need to do the hard things also to, to get us there. Um, and again, we're competing against, you know, Saudi's competing against other dollars, dollars that are going to yeah. other Singapore. Money, money today is, is global. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and look, I don't think it's sustainable for the UAE, for Egypt, for Saudi or for whoever in, in the region to continue to back the ecosystem. Long term, that's not a decent model. You want to do it initially right. to sort of get it moving, but at some point you want to let it go, right? And you want the private sector to, to pick it up. I mean, why should PIF continue to fund this for years on end? I don't think that's, that's an effective strategy. I think it's great that they're trying to get it on its feet. It makes absolute sense. And, and by the way, there's models of this, right? I mean, Singapore did the same thing. Other countries have done this similar thing. But at some point, you get to a development phase where you can just say, go and run on your own. And, and that's what you hope they get to. Yeah, it needs to kick over. So I think it's important. I think this is a good stopping point. Let's talk about Empower Middle East. Um, your journey there, because I think it's a fascinating initiative doing very interesting stuff. Can you tell us a, li a little bit about that? And by the way, it, 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 it really is quite distinctive for you to, you know, a, a DNA dyed in the wool venture capitalist to, to, to do this, take on this. Tell us why. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I, I, think, I think what's great is that the Atlantic Council allowed me that flexibility as, a, as someone who's doing venture capital to, to launch this. So what, what I like about it is that it's very entrepreneurial. They, they provided the room to, to, to do this. So the, the question I think for us was, well, what should we be doing and what has the most impact, right? Should we do another macroeconomic initiative? You know, there, there are great ones out there already. Should we add to that dialogue? Or do we want to do something different? And I think there was a bias on my part, of course, in, in, as an investor to say, look, I think the biggest impact we can make is peer-to-peer. Why don't we create an initiative that focuses on driving more entrepreneurship, driving women economic empowerment, because that's real impact and it can happen, you know, and we want to add to that. And we don't want to just write policy papers about it. That's one approach, but also push initiatives that really have impact on the ground. Um, and that's what we've been doing. Um, we've been saying, look, we're going to work top down, which is policy, but we're also, also going to work peer to peer bottom up, get American firms involved, investment firms involved with the regional ecosystem. How can we put it forward? And that's what we've done, whether it's entrepreneurship or women economic empowerment. And, and you mentioned the Winfellows uh, Fellowship. That was part of that discussion is women can play a much greater role today than they did only two, three years ago. And this is the Winfellowship, the first 
uh, cohort happens to be in Saudi. And what we've seen is a lot of women are going into entrepreneurship in Saudi. Again, they see as an outlet. They don't have to go looking for a job. They want to create their own businesses. So we want to help that. And, you know, it, we have data that shows that when women get involved in the workforce, it has such societal benefits, right? It's more than just impact for them. It's impact for their families, for children going forward. So the Wind Fellowship effectively says, look, we, you're, you started a business. How can we help you increase the probability that, that business is a success? So we partnered with Georgetown. We partnered with the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh. Thankfully, we got Pepsi and UPS to also come and co-sponsor. And we're doing a one-year program where we're doing two tracks. One is a curriculum like you would an MBA program, which Georgetown is, is, has been amazing and, and structured something really useful to build their management toolkit. At the same time, we built uh, an unbelievable list of mentors. And you can see it on the website. I mean, these are really impressive lists of, of folks from U.S. firms, local firms that will each adopt one of these entrepreneurs and, and really take them through this journey. So we're increasing their network, their peer-to-peer their -peer network. Um, and the Atlantic Council will talk about policy. What are the policies that impact these women to continue to increase and launch businesses? So throughout the process, we're doing top down and bottom up again. And it doesn't stop after the year. Um, after the year, there'll be an alumni uh, curriculum that will take them through. So we're looking to nurture their journey throughout. Uh, this, this first class is, is 20 Saudi women, correct? 33. All right. And they, they went through an application process. And, Absolutely. And, yeah. Absolutely. We went through an application process. We picked the top 33 that, that we felt had the right stage of business, uh, right mentality, uh, really wanted to, to, to succeed. Um, I should mention, by the way, the top five will be coming to the U.S. for one week to do leadership at, at Georgetown, as well as spend a couple of days with the Atlantic Council, meeting policymakers, meeting investors, meeting corporates. And, and that, that to me is an interesting component because we want both sides to learn from each other. And, and, and who better to speak to than the entrepreneurs themselves about their own experience, about what's happening. So, so, and, and, and so we're, we're, we're uh, replicating this program across several geographies. So we're working now on Bahrain, UAE, Egypt, Jordan, and we hope to, to scale it regionally. Um, but you can see how this could turn into a very powerful alumni network of women that are launching businesses, creating businesses, becoming leaders. And, you know, the halo effect would be tremendous. Oh, my. And I bet I wonder, <laughs> was your experience with this like U.S. academic institutions and probably Saudi academic institutions in that there, there are so many good female applicants that it's hard to choose? Wow. I mean, I've been working with women in the region in general, not just Saudi women, but Kuwaiti women, uh, UA, women from the UAE, Emiratis, uh, Saudi women, or Jordanian, uh, Egyptian. I mean, honestly, it, it, it's a, such an underutilized asset in the region. Um, and again, I think statistically, people don't understand that women in the region are, are very educated. So mm. education levels are actually greater than men. Um, Correct. But the problem has been participation in the economy. And not, not every country. I mean, some countries are already ahead. But I think in general, the participation levels need to increase. And for me, it's not, you know, I, I hate the, um, the KPI of women in the workforce because that's not enough. Because it doesn't, that doesn't take into account the huge churn that happens, right? Mm -hmm. I'd love to see women leadership, right? Are women on the board? Are, are women... Uh, um, on the in the C-suite, that needs to change. Um, so, so we need the right KPIs. We need to be very transparent about these KPIs, but we need to keep in, ensuring that the pipeline continues. And you know, in venture, it's really interesting. You know, the more venture capital women you have, the more uh, women entrepreneurs we fund. <laughs> so, we need also more women in venture capital because that feeds it, again another cycle and. Right. And that's what we try to do at Empower Me is look for these cycles, right? Is these flywheels. It's not enough to do a one here and one there. The question is, well, how do you have it sustainable? 
Right, a virtuous cycle. Exactly. How do you create that? And I think without women in leadership, women in finance, it becomes difficult. It becomes difficult to have it be sustainable. Um, you know, uh, we had May Almozaini uh, uh, a few episodes ago. She, 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 twenty-nine-year uh, Aramco career, really accomplished, capable woman, who started uh, 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 an initiative, a foundation called NUSF, which is half for yes. women's empowerment. And what she does is she finds mentors for young women. You know. Yeah very much what you're talking about women who can because from her experience was when she came through she had nobody to to look to to see how do how do i do this um but yes i can see how that virtuous cycle is is it would is a is a tremendous goal and would be uh, you know quite the accomplishment so this win fellowship uh the first group was saudi might understand it it will be to, uh, it, available and, and maybe offered in other countries as well yeah, so, so just to be clear, Saudi will continue on an annual basis. So right. this is the first cohort. There'll be another cohort next year and so on and so forth. Um, but yes, we will launch new chapters across the region. And we're actively talking to the U.S. embassies now around the region because they've been the initial sort of anchor sponsor. And then we would bring other sponsors onto that. But, you know, we, we, we would love to see this more as, as regional chapters and, and ongoing again, when we saw the most successful programs, it's the ones that have a really long tail with alumni, engage alumni on an ongoing basis. Um, So I think that's very important to the success of the program long-term, but that's, that's the, that's the key. Is the AmCham USA also involved with it? Supportive? They've been, they've been our local um, hybrid event sponsor. So They've been great in sort of working with us on the hybrid events locally. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the team there is tremendous and, and they've, they've really helped us a lot. And we're looking to replicate that across the region as well with other AmCham um, uh, groups. Well, you know, Amjad, you know, what's the phrase? Doing, uh, uh, doing well by doing good? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, you know, I you deserve to have your venture capital side just explode in bounty because you're doing good. Yeah, you know, look, I think I think there comes a time of life where <laughs> money is not the only thing, right? Right. Um, I think you know when you see sort of an entrepreneur build a business and that business gets sold, and then twenty more companies get created, and you know, I mean, it's interesting. We talk about employment a lot. And, and this youth bulge and, and all of that. I can tell you there are about 20 companies today that I'm dealing with that cannot find talent uh. in the region. So we don't, I, I don't know if we're going to have a, a, an employment issue soon. <laughs> all we're going to have is, is skill matching, right? Can we match the skills? And, and again, I think you know, that goes back down to education and us teaching the right things and making sure that the the pipeline of talent actually is is aligned to the opportunity set that's out there. Um, I think today you're seeing that break a bit, but we hope that, you know, the more engagement there is with the private sector, that the pipeline of talent sort of starts aligning a bit better. But, um, you know, if, if we really want to crack this issue of giving hope to youth, of making sure that they have outlets, of, of creating better economies and better opportunities, I don't see a better way. Um, you know, and, and the reality is the U.S. economy has given us that template. Right? <laughs> I, I, I love when you look at the capitalization of, of the market in the U.S. It's so diverse, right? We have IT companies are 30%. Financials are 10. Consumer is 20. You know, Saudi is 50% financial, 30% energy and material, right? Mm-hmm. right. That, that tells the whole story. Right. That tells the whole story. So, you know, we have a model. Let's 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 look at it. Let's let's localize it for sure. But the reality is that engine of entrepreneurship has has created a lot of wealth, a lot of opportunity in, in bigger markets. I don't see why it can't work here. You know, Amjad, this has been this has been extraordinary and it really really informative. I really like one of the goals of the nine six six is to understand the larger goals of the country, Saudi Arabia. Sure. And understand why these aspirations are what they are and, and you know, why it's important to get where they want to get, but also to try and drill down in the realities 
of implementation and the, the, the things on the ground that uh, the situation on the situations on the ground that that are either going to be a drag or they're helping along. And, you know, your whole discussion about the, the ins and outs of uh, venture capital and, and women participation and and this and that. And then your last statement, which I think is just fundamental to everything, education. And, you know, we're not going to get into that here, but I just really appreciate your looking at the uh, at the at the rudimentary mechanics of change. And it's been it's just been fascinating. Yeah, look, I, absolutely. I think th there is no um, one sort of, um, you know, golden uh, uh, thing that you can do to create an ecosystem. Right. That's why it's called an ecosystem. It's <laughs> it's it's a number of things. And. I think funding is one. I think, you know, re reform and regulation is one. Uh, rule of law, um, education is a big one. So this is not going to happen overnight. Uh, the numbers are fantastic. They're heading in the right direction. But sustainability comes down to getting all these pieces and balancing them in the right, the right format. And education is paramount to that. Um, yeah. and, and teaching our kids the right way and and, I, and by the way, I think we have a global issue with education. This is not just Saudi, right? We, you know, my kids are learning still the old way. And, you know, we need to, we need to be more dynamic. There needs to be more critical thinking. Um, I think globally, we just need to change the way we're looking at, at jobs for the future. I mean, my kids ask me all the time, what should I do? I say, you know what? I don't know, because I don't know what jobs they're going to be around in 10 years. <laughs> I thought you... I thought you were going to say my kids ask me all the time to help with math and it's completely changed and you can't. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, it, it, I mean, what jobs are going to be around in 10 years? I, I really don't have an idea. You know, my parents uh, yeah. be a lawyer, be a doctor, be an engineer. Great. Right. You know, today I have machine learning. I don't know. Crypto uh, you know, mining. <laughs> you know, and, uh, uh, so, so, I mean, I'm, I mean, I bring this up to say that that I think education in general needs a fresh look and, and how we teach our kids need, needs a fresh look, whether it's in Saudi or, or U.S. or wherever it is, but we, we need that to change. Uh, Lucian, my time is about up. It is. I'm Jed Ahmed, managing partner of VC firm Precinct Partners and also a director and resident fellow of Empower Me at the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East. Um, Jed, this was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it and uh, amazing podcast. Look forward to listening to more episodes.